0: Welcome to the Christina Crow podcast, where we connect the dots and search for more balanced mental health. Today, we are making invisible things visible for people with ADHD who are looking for that magical connection with an amazing therapist who also has ADHD. We're going to talk about what it's like to be a therapist with ADHD. And then when you're a therapist with ADHD, working with clients who also have ADHD, And i'm really pleased to introduce you to one of my favorite adhd therapists of all time krista carlin krista carlin is a registered social worker and adhd certified clinical services provider in hamilton ontario canada krista realized that how we treat the unique mental health needs of folks living with adhd could use some eh, updating krista dreams of a better future for adults with adhd and believes neurodivergent people who are safe, well, and accepted for their full selves make the world better. Krista provides adult ADHD therapy that is creative and collaborative, rooted in research and justice, and based in mindfulness and movement. Welcome to the show, Krista. Welcome to the Christina Crow podcast, making the invisible visible. I'm your host, Christina Crow, I'm a psychotherapist and a relentless mental health advocate in Ontario, Canada. I'm bringing you my clinical insights and research-based facts on modern mental health, and I'm going to bring you the experts I rely on to share their wisdom with you. Let's do it, guys. Let's dig a little deeper and make invisible things visible. welcome to the show krista thank you so much for taking time out of your crazy busy schedule to be here and to talk about this yes. topic thank with you much for having me yeah we um we
1: just had the first night with a puppy so i'm i'm <laughs> running on a little less sleep than normal so That's forgive me last in advance a Yes, but, but um, yeah, it's really exciting to be here. And yeah, I've, I always love conversations with
0: you, so I'm sure this will be amazing. So let's tell everybody, I, I guess, how we met, which is, I suppose, did we find each other online at first or? Yeah, so actually the way we met was that I was actually interested
1: in finding my own therapist right. for ADHD. And yeah. we connected and I'm, I explained that I'm a, I'm a therapist yeah. And during that process, you mentioned that actually you offer supervision and we, we sort of had a conversation around what's actually more appropriate. Are you looking for supervision or are you looking for therapy? And in the end, I decided I was looking for supervision
0: That's and right. for
1: folks out their supervision is is a space that therapists can actually consult with more experienced therapists to better their practice and to make sure that they're practicing with competence and following their guidelines and ethics, and also to kind of experience what it's like to get some of that practice advice that can be really helpful. So I might bring cases to our Mm -hmm. our meetings, or I might bring a practice question of like, how do I run this part of my business? So Mm -hmm. it's a really great space for therapists to have, that's a little bit different than therapy for, for therapists. So that's what we ended up deciding
0: and that's how we met. Right. And for those of you listening that are healthcare professionals yourselves, you know, if you're if you're physicians or nurses, you'll be familiar with, you know, doctors going to rounds, quote unquote, at the hospital presenting their their cases of their their patients and getting kind of a collaborative look at what the best thing is for the case, the problem that the patient is facing moving forward, right? For Mm -hmm. psychotherapists, social workers, anybody that's in private practice out in the community, meaning they're working solo by themselves, supervision is like such an essential part of both making sure you're doing your job really well, you're doing right by people, but also a a burnout buffer, especially over the last couple of years, like that collegial place to lean on each other. You know, therapists have been like holding the world for the last two years. (laughs) everywhere. I mean, you know, so myself, it's not been easy in a lot of ways. And our job has changed and ebbed and flowed. For therapists that like change and that respond to crisis really well, um, it's been an interesting time of expansion, building new skills, and all of those kinds of things that could lead to burnout if you can't slow yourself down and catch yourself. Um, But it also has had some surprising, you know, opportunities to to learn and grow. And so one of the things that has grown really, Krista, based on even my early relationship with you has been this realization, and and you brought this to me as well, that if you're a neurodivergent therapist, so a therapist with any neurodivergence, and in particular, we're going to talk about ADHD today, and all of its various uh, presentations we kind of have to give ourselves permission to do things a little bit differently. Hmm. Very much so. And I think that giving ourselves the permission
1: to play up our strengths and honor our challenges and, and the unique ways that we need to be extra careful in practice so that we're making sure that we are doing the best that we can by taking ownership of our neurodivergence and
0: using that well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're aligned with this, but tell me what you think. Like I'm, I say this to people often. I'm not like a huge fan that of the concept of ADHD as a superpower per se. However, because I think that kind of minimizes the things that are really hard about it. But mm-hmm. I will say that there are absolute strengths and benefits that when you're self-employed. Um, and, and in a field where you're doing the thing you love, like if, if your job is the thing you love, that's a really different set of uh, challenges than if you're in a job or in a school program that you don't love. So yeah. a lot of times people will say, oh, my God, I'm procrastinating. Help me with that. And I'll be like, well, what? What are you doing because if you're not doing something you don't love procrastination actually isn't your problem that's like mm-hmm. like that's like a signal that something else is wrong kind of like pain is if you've got a broken leg yeah do like, you don't want to just fix the pain i want to fix the leg right
1: absolutely and i think that like kind of this idea of adhd as a superpower i think that's a really important lens that some people bring to their diagnosis and especially mm-hmm. late identified folks who are starting to go through kind of the process of loss and liberation at the same time, which is a complex experience. It's complicated to feel that sense of loss and feel really liberated by language for what Mm -hmm. you go through. So it's complicated. And I think obviously plugging therapy, but I think a great reason why you would seek out an ADHD specific therapist, and particularly one who maybe themselves was late identified who can really truly understand that experience of loss and liberation so that you can have a more balanced view of ADHD in that absolutely there are key strengths to this neurotype, mm-hmm. but there are key challenges that exist for people because of the way that society is set up mm-hmm. and it makes it really hard. And I think if we only talk about the strengths and only frame it as a superpower, we're actually really missing out on a lot of really nuanced, complex, difficult pain that people experience
0: mm-hmm. as they're starting to grow into their
1: identity as
0: an adhd hmm I love the phrase you're using, the loss and the liberation, especially of a late diagnosis. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's
1: very much been my experience of, of like, it shows up as both and it, it, uh, it fluctuates and there's more times I feel the really deep grief And there's more times I feel this absolute neurodivergent joy and I think that's actually the complex experience is the back and forth of that intense experience of loss and that intense experience of liberation and joy
0: sometimes multiple times a day yeah ADHD brain. One of the things I think that we're we've been it's, it's like dipping your toe into the water of self-disclosure sometimes as a mm-hmm. therapist. So what we're taught in school and I don't know if we, we had different trainings. I don't know if your training was the same was that was that a therapist you're never supposed to self-disclose. You're never supposed to share anything about yourself, you know the whole blank slate thing and you know I, I kind of abided by that the first year I was out and then it started to seem silly. Because it really flies in the face of the, uh, all of the more, I guess, psychodynamic existential kind of therapists that I loved reading about when I was younger, like Yalom, about the basis of you know, being your real human self in relationship with somebody else and creating the space mm-hmm. for that. So it's a real skill set, you know, for sure, to develop that, the safe use of ourselves within relationship for the, for the benefit and the purpose of the person who's come to you to help them with whatever it is that they want to change.
1: When Mm -hmm. it comes
0: to ADHD, the thing that I've realized over time, like when I make my videos on social media, some of the feedback that I got in the beginning that kind of encouraged me to keep going with it was the way I described things was a way that they hadn't heard before and people identified with so much because I could describe it kind of, it was almost like from the inside out,
1: like no one had put
0: into words before what they had seen. And, and I kind of thought, oh, well, you know, it's because, you know, I've got ADHD too, right? So, and I kind of, you mm-hmm. know, like on a down low would like slip it out here and there. But then I was like, why, why am I doing that? Like, this is ridiculous, right? Like I should be able to just be free to talk about it. So I, I did, I started talking about it on social media a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And then I hesitated for a long time to say something along the lines of like, yeah, if you've got ADHD that you only figured out when you're an adult, you should see a therapist, who I, I started with has for sure training ADHD. And then mm-hmm. I started saying, you should find a neurodivergent therapist too. <laughs> or and maybe maybe your therapist, if you feel like they really get you and you've got ADHD, they might too and not know it. There's probably a lot of undiagnosed ADHD out in the therapy world, I imagine, as there is in lots of other, because you know, we've become therapists because we're trying to figure ourselves out first, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that there's, a lot to that. And I think if I
1: start sort of with the original question, which was how was I trained? And Mm -hmm. yes, we do have a slightly different background in terms of how we were educated to both be able to do Mm -hmm. psychotherapy in our province. Mm -hmm. So a social work uh, degree tends to have a real social justice focus. It incorporates a lot of the same things, but from what we would call an anti-oppressive practice perspective. So Mm -hmm. it really acknowledges that people exist in an environment that we have to look at both the person and the environment to have a better sense of what is troubling to that person and what the solutions could be. So it's not necessarily just that solutions need to exist within the person, but Mm -hmm. also that solutions need to exist in the societies that those people live in. So I think that when it came to the evolving science that has to do with what we would call interpersonal neurobiology mm-hmm. it's rooted in, in attachment theory. It's rooted in actual neuroscience that helps us understand that really the relationship with your therapist is the most important part. And the relationship with your therapist is on a human to human level, as opposed to a client and therapist level where you know nothing about your therapist, Obviously, the balance of time spent in connection with you about you is what matters. But there's an element of shifting the power to be more on that equal level, Mm -hmm. so that you get that experience of authentic connection with another human. And I think that if any therapists have been on the other side of the couch, they know how vulnerable it can be to share who they are and to be met with nothing in return, I think is really complicated for people. And it reinforces the fact that we can't be vulnerable. So I think that that social justice perspective and of how science is actually evolving to help us understand what are the benefits of therapy. To me, it's a no brainer that the more that we talk about what's wrong in our environment and talk about how this doesn't just affect clients, but it affects me too. And that human to human connection, I think self-disclosure is a no brainer for me in that I really believe that we as neurodivergent people benefit from knowing other neurodivergent people and seeing that that can be a beautiful asset and that it has those those pieces that are complicated. And that's what humanity is, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the co-regulation piece is so important. when you're late diagnosed with ADHD, so that for me that like from starting to suspect it to hopefully if people go for a formal diagnosis, which you don't have to, that can, that doesn't take, you know, forever. I know it does for a lot of people, depending on the jurisdiction that you're in and mm-hmm. uh, you know, what country you might be in. And there's a lot of accessibility issues, but the whole unfolding of the acceptance of what this means for you and what it's meant for your life. Like the, the reevaluation of everything basically is like this. Mm -hmm. I I feel like it's like this two to three year journey. It's not like you get the diagnosis. Oh, you try some meds and you know, you get some success there. And a lot of people, it might end there because you get such a benefit from the meds right away that you're like, wow, this is so much better than it was before. That must be as good as it can get. We don't know how good it can Mm -hmm. get because it's the only brain we ever had. There's no frame of reference. Mm -hmm. It's not like being depressed. You can reference a time when you weren't depressed. So now, you know, like what the, what the wiggle room is, right? Like what you should be aiming for. It's not like that with ADHD. And so it unfolds over time, like a roller coaster, like a lot, like a big aha in the beginning and some loop-de-loops and it settles out. You know what I mean? It peters out. It takes some time. But when you're sitting on a therapist's couch or in your own home on a screen yeah. and, and someone's Trying, you know, the therapist is trying to figure, get to know you well enough to figure out what what the thing is in your life that that's been a barrier. If if we don't know how to describe that ADHD, you know, for me, it's just basically like a disorder of execution, right? (laughs) So it it doesn't speak to a whole lot of other things. There's lots of things you want to do, you can't do it. You always feel like you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Um, It takes, you know, all, all those things that come into it. It. If you have a therapist that doesn't understand that there's an invisible brain-driven thing happening there, that it's not about character Mm. or will, you're going to walk away from therapy feeling like that feeling of you've had your whole life that somehow you're failing will just be reinforced by therapy. Absolutely. Yeah. I hear people will say like, I hated therapy before I tried it a couple of times and I walked away feeling like I couldn't do it because I couldn't do what the therapist wanted me to do. And I was yeah. just I'm so sorry that that's been your experience, you know?
1: Yeah, I think like an example of what you're talking about that really shows up for me is like therapists that are more inclined to assign homework.
0: Yeah, which is how, and, tra- that's how we're all trained. Which like, is how and, we're and
1: trained. <laughs> and, and this experience, there's gonna be this constant experience potentially of if ADHD is symptomatic, it's gonna make it really hard to do that homework. Yeah. And then you show up to session, you're you're already uh in a bit of a shame spiral because you didn't do the homework and you knew that you were supposed to. Yeah. And then the therapist is like, "Well, how, what are we supposed to do now if the homework hasn't been done?" Mm-hmm. And I think that is is a perfect example of how ADHD adapted psychotherapy says okay, what were the barriers to getting the homework done? Or potentially even, is homework even a helpful option for you? Like what, are, what yeah. are we gonna do that's gonna make it different? Or how do we actually think about the fact that there's exactly like you said, these invisible brain-based differences that make doing homework, remembering to do homework, starting homework, finishing homework, prioritizing that homework, doing it in a timely manner. There's mm-hmm. so many executive function elements to that one specific part of therapy. But if you don't have that ADHD adapted viewpoint, the mm-hmm. therapist is going to look at that and say, oh, they're not engaged. Right. Blame the client. Opposite of what ha- of what is happening. I think there's a real opportunity that's missed to help manage that emotional response of shame so that you can move forward with some of that executive dysfunction management. I think I I often let clients know that like, if there's executive dysfunction, there's almost always emotional dysregulation behind it. If things feel extremely hard and we start to feel a certain kind of way about it, it becomes really hard to then do the thing if we haven't managed how we feel about it. Mm And I think that's a great example of if the homework is really hard to, to do, you're feeling shamed about that. And then the therapist doesn't pick up on knowing that you need to actually work through the shame first before mm. you can problem solve how to do the homework better. It's just such a missed opportunity without that ADHD adapter viewpoint.
0: I love that. So as as all ADHDers, we're really good at inventing things. And coming up with $800 million ideas by noon, right? <laughs> and so one of the things that I, will, you've said it already, I want to talk about. So I, I don't know if if this was a thing before I figured it out. But a couple of years ago, I started talking about what ADHD adapted therapy is. As I started to try and figure out how to name what it is that I do differently when I know somebody has mm-hmm. ADHD or when I start to suspect it. I, I actually really shift my approach pretty Pretty significantly versus working with someone that's clearly neurotypical for me. And there's mm-hmm. another f- phrase that you've coined, I think, that I quite like, which is the neurotypical adjacent phrase. Yes, and I use that a lot. I think it's a lot of fun, and and you're the first person I ever heard said that. So I w- I'm going to ask you to explain that, but I want to explain. ADHD adapted psychotherapy, right? But therapy in itself, you know, in general, no matter what modality your therapist is trained in or practices, is pretty, it's, it's not directive, not directed by the therapist so much, right? Like it's a framework they apply that guides kind of the orientation of the work that they do with you, but it really is driven by the issues that somebody brings forward to therapy and it evolves from mm-hmm. there. And the thing that I realized early is that if I did that with people with ADHD, it was an incredibly frustrating exercise because if they knew the answers to these, you know, Socratically open-ended questions that I might ask, They wouldn't be in front of me right? because they would be able to to know why. And and that is about because the thing is not it's not a question of not knowing what you should do. Everyone can Google like the Huffington Post top 10 list of things of how to be organized. That is not the problem. Mm -hmm. The problem is in understanding the barriers to the consistent execution of your life, whatever that means to you. Right. So learning to understand whether whether I suspect it or somebody's already diagnosed, were they diagnosed as a kid or as an adult? Are they on medication or not medication? If they're on medication, is it optimized or is it not really super targeting all of their symptoms? If they don't want to be on medication, cool. Are there any like myths I need to dispel? Like often the choice for that is not like a medical indication choice. It's it's a belief about something that they've heard from somebody. Like there's some stuff Mm -hmm. to unpack there. When it comes to assessing the level of, Um, trauma associated with having growing up in this world with an ADHD brain. It's different for everybody. Not everyone with ADHD is, you know, experiencing trauma or has experienced trauma, but a good number of people have. And we know from the research, there's a bi-directional relationship, meaning it's kind of traumatic growing up with an ADHD brain in a neurotypical world. Right. Mm -hmm. And depending on the extent of support and nurturing you either had from family, from school, from community relationships, from your current relationships now, depends on where you might be in that. So that's a part of Mm -hmm. how we plan and pace everything. But it goes a lot slower than people think. And it it can get into the minutiae a lot more than people think, right? So Mm -hmm. it's not just coming and saying, Oh, my God, this is what happened to me this week. And kind of speaking in vague terms about stuff like I get I want to know everything that happened in the 36 hours prior to something happening, because therein is where I'm going to find the key to To your point, Krista, what's going on in the environment that's not Mm -hmm. supporting the way somebody's brain processes information and then figures Mm -hmm. out what to do next. Right. So that the whole way of being a bit more directive not leading people, but maybe providing examples. And then we do like the, am I hot or am I cold here with where this is? And that really helps guide people towards my, what is more like their experience that you can put their finger on. And then we can kind of work from there. So it's a lot of detective work, which is fun. I've yeah, up been a cop too, I think. Hey friends. If all you were told about ADHD was here's the medicine, off you go, then you've been missing about two-thirds of the recommended treatment. The stuff we know really works. Check out DIY ADHD, especially if you're waiting for services. You can get a jump start on all of the foundational education you can use to optimize the health care you're receiving or not receiving. Reclaim your family life. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about this resource. And use the promo code CC Podcast for fifteen percent off. Yeah, yeah. It's that, <laughs> well, it's that, cur- it's that curiosity,
1: right? That but, and usually curiosity is such a wonderful strength of an ADHD mind. Like yeah. being curious is totally dopaminergic. Like we love oh. being curious. Oh, so, <laughs> which, bad. which, I mean, the irony of the fact that we're both now therapists is not lost on me. But I think what I'll I'll kind of back up in that I think if we talk about ADHD adapted therapy, and sort of what I'm pulling from what you said is, it's therapy, but with a different structure on top. So a lot of clinicians are really trained in what we would call kind of client centered approaches um and i think that again we need to think about what it means to be client-centered when someone has specific impairments that make it harder for them to do that kind of open-ended work that you're talking about that loads of folks who are more uh, closer to neurotypical they really benefit from in therapy but what we notice or at least i notice in my practice is that that extra level of structure and predictability and routine and oh a willingness to be flexible within that structure and framework that tends to be a better fit for my clients. And that's that ADHD adaption. That means mm-hmm. that I'm still doing a lot of the wonderful skills that I learned as a client centered therapist. But I add on that directive approach that you're talking about, yeah. um, with a bit more emphasis on solution focused, and a bit more emphasis on let's not keep you in the dark about something if we yeah. can actually problem solve this, Can we actually get you some quick wins that help you make your life better? Yeah. Can I act as an external executive function for a while so that I can help you work through this really tough problem in your life so that you can actually see that it is possible to adapt and accommodate for your executive function difficulties. So that extra level of structure, and I think that extra level of willingness to be very solution-focused and not entirely client-centered in the sense that we're completely following the direction of the client, because sometimes if we're completely following the t- direction of a very divergent mind, we, we go far away from, yes. from All really original the original place. place that we started. So yeah. I think it's our responsibility as divergent therapists to be able to go with and bring back right
0: can you tell us what um neurotypical adjacent means
1: yeah i can i'll back (laughs) it up a little bit and kind of (laughs) give some basic definitions within the neurodiversity movement that's a good idea would that would that be okay yeah Yeah. perfect perfect so again i kind of come from a social justice background so right. your girl loves social movements and the one that i have like completely found myself in is the neurodiversity movement and whenever you hear the word neuro we're always talking about the brain body connection so our neurology and when we're talking about diversity we all have a good sense of what diversity means in that we have lots and lots of different examples of brain body connection it's diverse mm-hmm. so the neurodiversity movement is a movement of people who have really aligned under this idea that we have a wide range of expressions of our brain body connection so when we talk about neurodiverse that's an umbrella term that actually includes all people we are all neuro all the people of the world Yeah. Yeah, all the people of the world, we have lots and lots of different examples of how we express our brain-body connection, what our neurology is, or what our neurotype is.
0: Right, so referring to groups of people rather than individuals. Correct.
1: So when we're, we're then kind of trying to fit people individually under that umbrella term of neurodiversity, we're looking at sort of two basic groups within and then tons of subgroups within those. Right. And the main distinction is neurotypical, mm-hmm. which means that their neurology is developing typically, mm-hmm. the way we would expect it to based on what we know about the brain and body.
0: It's, human, it's human development across all age, age. Yeah, yeah, ages, yeah, it's
1: following a typical developmental pattern.. Mm-hmm neurodivergent means that somebody's brain body connection differs from that typical developmental trajectory that we're talking about. And when we're talking about neurodevelopmental, there's lots of different examples of different ways our brain body connection can develop across time. A great example is ADHD and even within folks who have adhd there's loads of different ways that our our neurology is expressed so
0: different we say if we know one person with adhd you know one person with adhd exactly another
1: great example of a neurodivergence is folks who are autistic and i use the person first or excuse me i use the identity first language very intentionally there because that's what the community says they prefer We have folks who experience dyslexia, we have folks who, or any specific learning differences, there's loads of examples of ways that our neurology development can differ from the typical trajectory. Mm -hmm. And I think when I, I initially kind of used it as like a bit of a joke in our work together in that because I was late identified, I grew up thinking I was neurotypical. Right. So I actually had a really, really really good understanding of what the expectations are of a typically developing nervous system. I knew the standards that I was supposed to be meeting because sometimes I could, Mm -hmm. sometimes I was able to consistently meet those standards. But the problem was, is that I really couldn't do it all the time. Right. And that's what kind of led me to my own neurodivergent reckoning in that i started to realize that i was like things really are way harder for me <laughs> this this doesn't feel quite right and as i went through my own identification process started with self identified it went to a formal diagnosis but it started with me sort of being like i think these standards just don't work for me And as I do the work now, I talk about what it's like to be neurotypical adjacent. I'm neurodivergent, but for so long, I was neurotypical. I thought I was neurotypical. So I really understand that culture and those expectations. I'm Mm -hmm. adjacent to neurotypicality.
0: Yeah.
1: Which means that I get to be a, a really interesting mediator between two cultures. Yeah. I get to be a really interesting mediator to help develop empathy from both a neurodivergent to neurotypical and neurotypical to neurodivergent. And I think that feels like what my amazing opportunity and honestly an ethical responsibility is being an advocate for the neurodivergent community by being able to exist in neurotypical spaces in a way that means that I'm heard Mm
0: -hmm. because I lived adjacent to that for so long. When when we work with, like you work with adults? do you do couples? Yes. Do you do couples or
1: so, di- families as well? M- my background is actually in children and family, and that's okay, how okay. I got right. I got interested in ADHD in the first place. Is oh, I God. did a a placement in a children and family setting, and okay. I worked with what I now know are ADHD families, and I was like, I love these families.
0: I love these, working with people with ADHD. these kids so are fun. amazing. Yeah. Why do I love yeah. them
1: so much? And in that kind of love of the work, I did tons of research, and that's kind of—it's a long winding road to diagnose. I just read a chapter about my life. What? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, wait a second—is yeah. there a reason why I get these kids so much? <laughs> right. um, but yes, yeah, so my background is in children and family. But I think the original reason for doing children and family work was I thought, oh, that's preventative work. That preventative work. <laughs> but I actually realized that if you work right. like with adults that is the preventative work because if we can help adults before even before their parents or as their parents we that's the preventative work um so i think that was kind of why i chose to work with adults um Mm -hmm. but yeah so i do have a background and a little bit of couples but um it's not my bread and butter
0: yeah i mean i think like being able to have that lens where you've grown up Thinking you were neurotypical, having to, to negotiate life, uh, according to those experiences, the freedom, so the liberation piece that you described from before, with finally uh, understanding this diagnosis, accepting it, figuring out what it means for you, how it's shown up in your life, what, it, what doors it opens up, actually, in terms of opportunity for the future. It's nice to be able to take both sides, right? Right. Because a mm-hmm. lot of times even if you're an individual in therapy, we, we are talking about all your relationships and how you relate to people. So the relational neurobiology framework that we operate from is so helpful because it you can't see it. It's invisible. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I always say to people, remember that movie with Bradley Cooper from a long time ago? He's just not that into you? Did you see that one? Yes. Yeah. I mean, the premise of the movie is that if he's not doing it, he doesn't want to. And if he does it, he wants to, right? Basically. Mm -hmm. So like, ladies, stop wishing hoping and praying your man's going to change. You know, if you really wanted to, he would. And it's Mm -hmm. very neurotypical. Like, maybe, (laughs) but as we know. There's lots of, it was, it's when I have couples in front of me where I'm like, I love you guys, man. Like, I love your dynamic, your chemistry, your relationship. And the, the, when you can see that people are trying so hard and they're doing the best that they can, the execution doesn't match what, what you feel with them, what they report, they feel for each other, any other feature. So it's kind of like, oh, there's something else here. There's a barrier But it's not obvious, right? So a lot of the undiagnosed adults that are out there. So, you know, if we know that like seven to ten percent of adults globally might have ADHD, but the last data we have before the pandemic and the phenomenon of TikTok (laughs) was that eight in ten of those adults are undiagnosed. So -hmm. where are they? They're they're invisibly hiding in the whole world, where are they, right? Like the data shows that they're in couples therapy, they're in family therapy, they're in family court, they're in addiction services, they're out there. There's all kinds of other things experiencing challenges in the workplace because they don't know yet that there's an invisible thing that's actually the thing that's tying their shoelaces together. So Mm -hmm. to be able to see that and then to be adjacent enough to be able to describe that for both the neurodivergent person in a marriage or a relationship or partnership and the neurotypical person so they can understand each other. And so they know it's it's not personal. It's not because they don't want to show up. It's It's that we need to change the environment around us and our expectations a little bit so that we can be free to be ourselves. Yeah. And
1: I think there needs to be a level of respect for the fact that ADHD is disabling in certain environments. Absolutely. And it, it can be a really difficult experience to not have the accommodations that you need to be successful. And I think that in, in a relationship, that's a really good example of the fact that actually this is an interabled relationship. If there's a neurotypical partner and a neurodivergent partner in that the ability is going to be different. And sometimes that's the magic. Sometimes that's the sweet stuff. But mm-hmm. although there's the very specific and unique challenges that show up because of ableism, because of oppression based on disability, that's not necessarily that people are intentionally being right. ableist, but mm-hmm. it's more that people are uh, using the framework that we've all learned of neurotypical standards to do things that are ableist. Again, I'm not saying that people are being intentional in that, but I think the product of our society means that ableist behaviors are very common, and and that can be really difficult to navigate in a couple that has two different abilities.
0: Can you share with us what the what uh, working definition of ableism is, just for people who aren't familiar with that term?
1: Yeah, so oppression is when our institutions, our systems, have invisible or very visible systems that use power over people of certain identities. And we label that in lots of different ways, racism, sexism. One of them is ableism. And that's very specific experiences within a system that use power of a certain group, so what we would probably consider abled folks Mm -hmm. that power is used over folks who are disabled right and it's again it's often very very invisible and very very subtle sometimes it's extremely obvious and extremely clear that there's an ability discrimination happening um but that experience of power over Mm -hmm. because of an identity that's related to disability, that is the experience of ableism.
0: Yeah, having having you know a standard that has nothing to do with you applied to you and having to measure up to it no matter what the pressure. That is a the, the awful
1: way. About. And and not only is that done on a like an obvious level, like actual education standards and actual mm-hmm. like systemic, very clear systemic but mm-hmm. also in those kind of unwritten social rules of, in a relationship, if he wants to, he will. Right.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so like, like we do it in families to each other a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I
1: think it becomes, and when it comes to having a disability, there's a responsibility of taking ownership of that experience by getting the right kind of support mm-hmm. and by self-advocating. Mm -hmm. So, in instances where there is ableism happening, I think it's a really difficult experience in that the responsibility often ends up being on the disabled person to self-advocate, and the goal of the neurodiversity movement is actually to create spaces where it's inclusive anyways. The system Mm -hmm. that makes it necessary for you to self-advocate has shifted, so that it's that responsibility isn't always on you.
0: It's actually mm-hmm.
1: assumed that there's many different expressions of neurology and that we need to accommodate and modify for everybody.
0: Yeah, I have this scene unfolding in my mind cause my default mode network never shuts off <laughs> as you talk about this, of a typical family, kids are home, it's after dinner, the rush happens to clean up, maybe think about homework or people going to practices, who's driving who, where, getting ready for the next day, possibly. The laundry's piling up. The dog hasn't been walked, all the things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And oh, I've told this kid, I don't know how many times, to pick that up. And he just stepped right over it right in front of me. And mm-hmm. I'm like, about to like, have my head spin off my shoulders right and in mm-hmm. that moment recognizing he actually didn't see it, he actually doesn't see it even though he's so yeah. grid. So there's there's a couple of different processes going on there that you know my neurotypical adjacent even like as a parent my expectations like I've I've had to completely shift everything. You have to shift everything as a parent when you have a kid diagnosed with ADHD, right? But mm-hmm. to to from an ableist point of view, like even the expectation that he should be able to see that thing and pick it up and put it where it belongs is like a belief we have to extinguish. So some balance of, boy, these kids still got to go out there and function in the world. And I got to like, make sure they know some stuff and they have some skills and they can speak up for themselves. You Mm -hmm. know, even just teaching them noticing and turns around and sees my face, And then, you know, the, the cascade of thoughts happened for him. Like he, he knows I'm not happy about something, but doesn't know why, Mm -hmm. why can't I please my mom? Right. And sometimes I say to parents, like, if you think of, if you had to split the balance of a negative correction or a command to your kid versus just some positive reinforcement in a pie chart, (laughs) what would your pie chart look like every day? Right.
1: Yeah. And on the days
0: when I'm feeling shittiest as a parent, it's when my pie charts like it's been 97% corrections today. Like I have not had a moment of joy or connection with my kid. And how do I <laughs> how do I make that at least more balanced, if not totally turn that pie chart around? Right. And it's so yeah. hard it's an ongoing process. We can be so hard on ourselves within families, but I think this conversation is so important and understanding the invisible brain-driven function is important because it helps us understand why people do the things they do. And so that we yeah. don't take personally, he's not trying to drive me crazy, even though it feels like, yeah. It.
1: <laughs> and I, and I think that uh, again, if we kind of like bring the social justice perspective to this situation, we yeah. recognize that this is a person in an environment mm-hmm. and that there are systems that make ableism a thing.
0: Mm-hmm. So.
1: What we can do from a social justice perspective in that moment is that it, we can manage our own emotions first because we've taken ownership of our emotional experience. I'm not a parent yet, but I can yeah. only imagine.
0: Well, you are this <laughs> little squeaky thing at it, your feet there, right? There's exactly. a little squeaky guy at your
1: feet. <laughs> you can only imagine how difficult it is to manage your own emotions as a parent first, but that's your responsibility. To then look at the situation and remember that behavior is communication
0: Mm -hmm.
1: what is the problem how can we get on the 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 experience of us against the problem instead of you against me right so that we can look at what the problem is and we can look at how can we change the system how can we change the environment how can we change the expectations how can we accommodate or how can we make it easier or how can we make it actually harder so the behavior is less likely to happen?
0: Mm -hmm. So
1: we can look instead of looking at our kid as being defiant for stepping over the toy, we can think about does that toy even have a home? Does that toy have a home that's actually accessible to the kid? Is the box closed and um not clear yeah. yeah opaque can can they actually understand that that's where the toy goes mm-hmm. is there an issue of the fact that it's overwhelming how many toys there are and which one to even start with what does done look like how mm-hmm. do i even know that how do i remember that when i have difficulties with working memory it becomes much less about my kid is defying me right now and much more about how can i actually help them solve this problem how can i be their teammate and how can i be their advocate until they can develop those self-advocacy skills themselves
0: yeah and i I, and and slowing down life a little bit like at the end of the day Mm -hmm. everybody's overwhelmed and overstimulated and tired and needs a little bit of you know how do we regulate our nervous systems intentionally so that we don't unintentionally start doing a bunch of things that, I mean, not that that's necessarily bad. It could be a good thing, right? Everyone's different, but uh, recognizing the pace of life is, Mm -hmm. is kind of, it's kind of bananas really, right? I don't know if our is caught up to the expectation of what should be happening and everyone's constantly on the go. And now that the world has opened up more, it's, it's almost like we're right back to how busy we were before after having a couple of Mm -hmm. years of life being kind of nice and slow in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. And I think that term of like regulating our nervous system is a really
1: important one. And when we talk about our neurology, we've talked about our neurology being our brain-body connection. And our nervous system is the main connective tissue of that. It's the main nerve that actually Mm -hmm. connects our brain and body. So when we talk about nervous system regulation, we're talking about regulation being balance. Mm-hmm. And I often like to think that we are trying to find a balance between input and output. And ADHD is often able to have lots of input, but mm-hmm. difficulty without with output. No kidding. So that input to output, that regular balance between the two can be extra hard. So yeah. we need to we need to be mindful of our sensory input. Our motor input, like the actual movement that we get, the input of information, the input of all sorts of things that our brain is trying to process and Mm -hmm. recognize that sometimes our output is very much rooted in hyperactivity, in motion, in movement, in trying to get some of the energy that we're trying to process out. Yeah. So I think that when we talk about regulating our nervous systems, that I think that's a way that we can talk about it that might make sense to people is yeah. how do we actually find the right balance between input and output while respecting that it's not an even teeter-totter
0: for a neurodivergent brain. Right. And for folks that are experiencing the benefit of the right dose for them of stimulant medication to manage their ADHD mm-hmm. symptoms, knowing that for the most part, whatever we're doing during the daylight hours, whether it's school or work, that's that's what's benefiting from our brain being fueled appropriately. But the meds kind of wear off in the evening when we're home all together with our families. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so people sometimes feel really frustrated that they feel like they're doing all this work, they're taking medication, they're getting therapy and coaching, and they're still getting into all the same frustrating you know, communication problems and you know, conflicts with their family members in the evening without kind of remembering like, oh, you've got no meds on board in the evening. You've actually just reverted right back to general ADHD brain, right? Mm-hmm. And so knowing that, so two things I want to say. One thing is like taking medication, the, the, the purpose of that is not to turn you into a neurotypical and have you burn burn it from an energy and expectation and an achievement point of view as if you didn't have ADHD. Uh, right. And, yeah. I, and I try to make that clear because I think a lot of people are like, oh, great. Now that I'm on meds, now I can like be like, I don't have ADHD. and I'm like, eh, not really. <laughs> this is a little more, more nuanced than that. And in the evening, because we don't have the benefit of meds, I mean, maybe I don't, depending on what kind of regime you're on, um, that we actually need to m- change our expectations of what we're supposed to be doing, all the shoulds, right? Mm-hmm. And adjust our life and our lifestyle and our expectations to be a little bit kinder to ourselves and to our experience as humans. And people, I think, really don't like hearing that. They don't want to have to change anything.
1: Yeah. And I think, again, that's a really great example of how deep the story of ableism is in our society in that oh, we yeah. actually are wanting medication potentially to help us turn neurotypical. And mm-hmm. that it's really tough when exactly like you say, it's more about that medication helping us navigate that nervous system regulation, giving Mm -hmm. us a little bit more of what we need so that we can find more of that balance. But that doesn't automatically mean we are going to then live up to neurotypical standards. So what it's about is both foundation of medication and skills of self advocacy Mm -hmm. and, and looking at how you can live from a neurodivergent perspective instead of trying to fit into neurotypical standards that don't and won't work for you they actually don't and won't work for everybody they're Mm -hmm. they're not fair for for anyone they're Mm -hmm. they're they're unrealistic for almost every brain so Mm -hmm. i think that that's what can be really tough for people is that yeah medication offers an incredible opportunity for you to do things easier those problems completely gone, um, yeah. which means that maybe it's more about you versus the problem than you being a problem. 100%.
0: Yeah. Like it's not magic fairy dust. All it does okay. is level the playing field neurologically. It doesn't give you extra. <laughs> it doesn't give you extra. And even, power. it might feel like even, that because of how hard things were before. But just when you, hmm. you compare to the general population, like then we're just like, re- then we just have regular people problems.
1: Yeah, and even and potentially even as well, like it may not actually even level the playing field, depending right. on the severity of your experience. So it, it could make a vast difference in your difference in your life and still not be enough in in, yeah. in a way that's going to be matching folks who are much closer to neurotypical standards because they're neurotypical.
0: Mm-hmm. So I think
1: I just want to add that in that even with medication, we still need to be really critically thinking about how do we relate to neurotypical standards and what works and what does not?
0: Mm -hmm. I think you're kind of answering this, but I wanna ask it explicitly. The Canadian guidelines put out by CADRA, the Canadian Physician Resource Alliance or ADHD Alliance for Clinicians that exists nationally have guidelines that state this that are free to download anywhere for anybody. And global guidelines all, you know, far and away have uh, that multimodal treatment is best, best practice. Mm -hmm. Multimodal means there's different. We attack it from all angles. So medication for sure. Um, And then their psychosocial interventions they refer to, which is getting therapy and getting ADHD specific coaching. I'm, I'm kind of developing an opinion that it's medication therapy and coaching comes after therapies because you know untie a couple of things and get some things sorted out and then you can kind of focus on more you know minutia of your day-to-day kind of thing it's becoming increasingly obvious that that actually like th- psychosocial interventions we can lump them together maybe and medication are like not equally efficacious but it's really imperative to, if you're looking for that optimal outcome to have that because i think a lot of people just get medication and they mm-hmm. never they never go and get the there like they read some stuff online or they they take maybe an online course, but they don't actually get the live experience of a therapeutic relationship to unpack it all and mm-hmm. how how essential do you think that is let's let's leave accessibility out of it for a second, then we'll bring accessibility back in so if everybody could get it, should everybody get it? Oh yeah, I mean again. I'm biased in the sense that I'm a therapist who has
1: gone through my own experiences of therapy and my own experiences of ADHD-adapted therapy. Mm-hmm. I think that it absolutely is a combination of pills and skills that you develop in therapy mm-hmm. that help you to navigate life as an ADHDer,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and And the scope of, a pra- of practice of a physician and even the time that they have available to you isn't going to offer you the time you need for skill development right and they're the experts in medication for good reason and that's what they are going to do the experts who are in those psychosocial treatments are therapists and we're the ones who can help you actually deal with okay i have adhd now what
0: yeah and and i think it's nice for people to hear uh, hear what that should sound like. So, you know, when you're looking for a new therapist or you even have one that you maybe haven't seen you want to go back to, I've realized I have ADHD or I have ADHD. How can we do therapy that helps me unpack that and make the most of that? And what, what is your experience with ADHD? How many clients with ADHD have you worked with? I think are great questions to ask a therapist
1: yeah and i think that there are definitely an emerging group of clinicians who have this skill set mm-hmm. and the, the group of us are trying to make it more possible for more therapists to yeah. work from this lens it's a big reason why we're doing something like this is that we want to open up this conversation to other clinicians and welcome them in to this movement and helping Th- there be more therapists for people. But I think we need to acknowledge that um, we are a, are a small but mighty group.
0: <laughs> small but mighty, yeah. Kristen and I have both done like workshops and presentations back to our own, you know, associations that we belong to for people that are interested in this training, therapists that are interested in this training. We've both provided that in different ways. And, you know, the, I'll, I'll, I'll say when it comes to our, our peers, Nothing drives me crazier than when I hear therapists out there denying the existence of ADHD, denying the significance of it, saying like, "Oh, it's just trauma," or "Oh, it's caused from trauma and if you apply a trauma treatment that we can resolve the ADHD." So that is a I, this is beyond the scope of this discussion to get into the nitty-gritty of that. Even if you're a therapist that's out there and you know you're you're kind of not sure, you're open to the idea of figuring that oh maybe there's some more more to the story than we've been led to believe is that you you can do the trauma work and continue the work and when someone is working hard and you've done the trauma work but they're still struggling those symptoms that they're still struggling with are the stones that have been unturned those are the rocks you need to pick up and look underneath um because again people don't fail treatments treatments fail people
1: yeah well and that is a really great point in that a part of how I learned that I had ADHD is that I did my own trauma therapy, I did um, EMDR. And actually, what what was a really amazing outcome of EMDR for me was my experiences of, of anxiety and specifically the body based experiences of anxiety, those somatic symptoms, we would talk about mm-hmm. those were drastically drastically reduced. But what was left over was those executive function issues. Yeah. Even with the trauma focused work that I had done, I still had brain-based differences. Mm-hmm. Was I a much happier and healthier person? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And is, is there probably more for me to do in terms of trauma work that looks at the specific experience of not having the right information to understand what was happening to me because I didn't have the knowledge of, mm-hmm. of ADHD yet, there's more to do in terms of trauma work, but we would actually be treating the wrong thing if we didn't have right. an ADHD or, or neurodivergent affirming lens. Right.
0: Yeah. And, and I think, you know, one thing that we didn't touch on, which maybe we can do in another conversation is the whole experience of growing up in a family because we know the genetic and hereditary uh, piece of ADHD where uh, very few people in the generation above us are diagnosed. And if they are, it's Mm -hmm. probably because their kids were diagnosed, right? So Mm -hmm. we, we grew up in family systems with potentially a little bit or a lot of undiagnosed ADHD. And so Part of the reason why it's hard to accept the diagnosis is that we're surrounded by people who are the same as us (laughs) in lots of ways. And then as adults, we go back to them and want to validate the story. We want them to acknowledge what they missed, but because they don't have the benefit of what we've gone through, it's kind of really hard for them to do that. And that feels like rejection and it feels like, you know, judgment and trauma therapy can help unpack and process a lot of that stuff as well.
1: Absolutely. And again, it's, it's a recognition from a social justice perspective that our access is different, generational access to the right kind of care is very different. And so are the attitudes because of that. So we as a generation of late identified folks, those who are parents, those who hope to be parents get to do a really different thing, which is understand and know their neurodivergence before or during their parenting journey. Um, when their kids are kids, as opposed to adults, so right. it's again, it's a it's a way that we as a group of people can actually help to change intergenerational patterns of trauma, where mm-hmm. our our kids get the opportunity to have a parent who affirms their experience and understands and believes their experience, um, which means that there's more safety.
0: Yeah. And do all the parent coaches we know that are cheering right now. I mean, it means yeah. if you're a parent, you gotta you gotta work on your own stuff first. Or <laughs> yeah. you try to, you know. That's what therapy's for. <laughs> therapy, therapy. Yeah, therapy's good, right? So yeah. Um, okay, so we're we're coming up to the end of our time together here. I want to ask you one last question, which for people, we know access is different in a lot of different layered ways for people, but even people who are struggling to find the one in terms of the therapist that they need who maybe can't afford it or don't have benefits the difference between the private and public you know structure of our system do you have any advice for people who maybe after listening to this are like gee I probably could benefit from some therapy sessions where do I start like what do you think people should do
1: Yeah, I think what we've started to learn from research on therapy is that the most important factor for good outcomes in therapy is the relationship that you have with your therapist. So obviously the ideal situation would be that you have an incredible relationship with your therapist who totally has an ADHD adapted lens, but that isn't widely available yet. So I think what's important is that you prioritize the relationship first and we talk about willingness to learn and that therapist being open to, Hey, I really want you to know more about this. Are you willing to learn so that I can get the best possible care? So I think that's the, the advice I would give is shop around for a therapist. And if you have the right vibe, that's going to mm-hmm. be what matters the absolute most. And then the next step is asking if they're interested or able to look more into ADHD adapted stuff. Obviously, if it's really important to you to find an ADHD specific therapist, definitely do that and maybe get on their wait list so that you can maybe have that opportunity in the future. But Mm -hmm. in between now and then there's certainly ways that you can really start some of the healing with a really solid relationship with a solid therapist, even if they're not ADHD focused.
0: Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of therapy profiles out there. I see where ADHD is getting thrown in there. So don't be shy to actually just ask somebody like what kind of ADHD training do you have? What is your, what's your lens? It's okay to ask people that it's okay to ask your doctors that it's okay to ask your therapist that it's okay to ask anybody that who purports to give you advice or talk about the condition of ADHD. I just want to put that out. there. Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. You always have the the right to ask that question. And remember as well, especially if you're paying for therapy, you're paying for a service, you're investing your time, energy and money into this relationship. So it's really important that you're getting a good bang for your buck. And a part of that is feeling like you're making a solid investment because you feel good about who you're talking to. So trust that instinct, if you're like, this just doesn't feel right, even if it's after a few sessions, you absolutely have the right to find somebody else.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Look, I mean, it's nice to let them know. Send them an email. (laughs) saying It's not really working out. Thank you. But, uh, you know, I'm going to move on. That's fine. It's totally fine to do that. Right. Your therapist will get over it. (laughs) That's what they got supervision for. (laughs) Yes,
1: exactly. That's what they have supervision for.
0: Yeah. Okay. Is there anything you think that that in terms of being a neurodivergent therapist, working with people with ADHD, whom we both love to do, and then doing our bit to help educate other therapists that that we missed or we should touch on i think that um maybe
1: just for any therapists out there who are curious about their own neurodivergence i would probably encourage them to like follow that that curiosity follow that instinct and and maybe see if there are ways that you can help yourself so that you can then help other people i think it's really key to talk about that idea of like, it's been a two, three year journey for myself to feel grounded in confidence about the work I do now. And it started with like, a, hmm, what is really going on here
0: yeah. uh, about
1: my own experience. So I think the more people that actually follow that curiosity and find out what's going on for them and develop that that sense of loss and liberation. And the more people we have as out and open neurodivergent therapists, the more space we make and the more that we contribute to the movement and contribute to hopefully big changes in systems moving forward. Um, So I hope that some therapists out there who maybe are listening and thinking, wow, why do I really, really like these two? And why do they just seem like they get me? I would, I would follow that, that curiosity.
0: Yeah. My totally unscientific opinion is when you meet someone and you immediately get each other, you're probably talking to somebody else that is also (laughs) neurodivergent, probably not that you should go around diagnosing people out there, but it's, it's, you can smell it walking down the street as one of, one of our previous guests had said, Lisa, it's, it's just, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And, you know, people that are neurodivergent meet other neurodivergent people and they might be a neurotypical adjacent neurodivergent person and fall in love and get married and make more babies with ADHD and, you know, or any neurodivergence and on and on it goes. So, you know, because evolution supports the proliferation of it, (laughs) I think, you know, it's not all bad. There's a lot of protective factors there. So it's okay to lean into that and to unpack our own self-stigma right? Totally. Funny. Mm-hmm. We're out there like fighting stigma, like, mm, like mental health awareness, yet within the therapeutic community, oh, there's a lot of self-stigma, right? Yeah. And, you know, that, that's, that's good to do some work on that, for sure. There's nothing Definitely. like being comfortable in your own skin. Yeah. And again,
1: that, that self-stigma work that helps to combat internalized ableism so that we can actually uh-huh. then work on all those examples of it that are out in the world. So mm-hmm. we can be better advocates for our clients yeah
0: amazing thank you so much for this
1: yeah it's like i said i i always love conversations with you so i figured it would it would evolve and take shape and
0: here we are i'm interested to hear the feedback and if people have any questions yeah Yeah. where can people reach you where can they find you if they want to check out your website or your socials
1: not taking clients on my waitlist at the
0: moment. I do let people
1: know on my social media when I am opening my waitlist, but it is currently closed. But if you're interested in connecting more with me, you can find me on Instagram at ADHD.thecuriouscollective. And my website is www.thecuriouscollective.ca.
0: Okay, and I'll make sure those are linked in the show notes and in the usual typical resources and stuff we'll make available. So if people want to learn more, you know the the, the ADHD resource hub we have and the information. On Krista's website too is is all an effort to put really great information out there that people can access for free and get the support that they need regardless of accessibility issues. So you just need, well, you need to be able to have Wi-Fi, I suppose. So thanks so much, everybody. This was a wonderful conversation. We do want your feedback. We will see you next week with more awesome stuff supporting the beautiful brains of those with adhd yeah thank you so much for having me that's it for today my friends we hope you enjoy being a fly on the wall for this one leave me some messages uh through the page on anchor if you have any questions that you want follow up on and please check the show notes for all the relevant links that we did discuss today if you like the show, please like and share it, share it in your social media, tag us, dig a little deeper therapy, and that kind of lets us know that we should keep doing this and it will help sh- it, the podcast show up in all the places that you do listen to podcasts. Until next time.